Podcast. The motto for 2 Corinthians is, When I am weak, then I am strong. The Holy Spirit is using the Apostle Paul's troubles to show us that God is faithful, not only to see us through, but to use our difficulties in powerful ways. Now let's join Pastor Ross with another message from the series entitled, Strength Through Weakness. Now, Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you and we acknowledge, God, that this is a living word, that it has its origin in you. It's God-breathed. And so we submit to it as the commands of the Lord and not the ideas or suggestions of men. And so we pray that we would be changed by it, Lord, that we'd submit to it, understand it, put it into practice, Lord, so that we could be a blessing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Last Sunday, as Paul concluded his letter to Titus, he encouraged Titus and all Christ followers uh, to have the wisdom to avoid pointless conversations that go round and round, not to get entangled or embroiled, as you'll recall, in conversations that are not constructive, that just cause a lot of strife. And uh, those conversations are usually started by people who are disingenuous and, and divisive. And he said, have the wisdom to sidestep all of that nonsense. It's a waste of time. Now, the problem, and, and most people had this comment, that it's not always easy to tell the difference and know when to engage uh, and when to sidestep because we know that we're called to engage our culture and answer questions and have some hard conversations. So uh, God expects us to use discernment for to know. And in fact, in the book of Proverbs, there seems to be a proverb that contradicts itself. You'll recall in Proverbs 26, along these lines, it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be just like him. And then... In verse 5, right after that, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. And so which is it? Do we not answer a fool according to his folly, lest we be like him? Or do we answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes? Well, God expects you to use discernment. And the answer is it depends on what kind of fool you're dealing with. It really does. And, and now when, when the Bible talks about fool, it uses a different word than the fool that Jesus said, don't you be using this word. It's a different word. The fool that when we talk about this kind of situation, it's a willful ignorance of truth, right? And so uh, when I say it depends on what kind of fool you're dealing with, what kind of person, is it a temporary outburst of fool or, or is a foolishness or is it an established lifestyle? Is it uh, a person who's teachable or unteachable? Uh, what's on the line? Is it worth going to war over? You know, so the Bible teaches us to use discernment, to choose our battles. In fact, last Sunday's message is called Choose Your Battles. And so now... Sometimes we engage, even if it's hostility and uh, uh, those who oppose us and the gospel. And other times we just have to have nothing to do with them because it's useless and uh, not profitable. Well, Paul the Apostle has decided to engage the foolish people at Corinth. And he has picked one of his battles He's decided to answer a fool according to their folly, and it's called 2 Corinthians. The entire book is dedicated to answering the foolish accusations, uh, the bad theology, the attempt to undermine his relationship with the congregation that he himself planted uh, by God's grace, and he answers them. Now, for Paul, if they're just kind of making fun of Paul, Paul would care less. 
But here, to diminish Paul's um, credibility is to diminish the veracity of the scriptures because the word of God is coming through him. And so there's a lot on the line. And so he is going to fire back. He's got his pen in hand and the Holy Spirit's guiding him now in 2 Corinthians. And uh, those who are acting foolishly, sadly, are, quote, some of the congregation there. The commentators call them interlopers. And, And an interloper is just an intruder, So the newcomers who came in, the wannabe pastors who are false teachers, came down to Corinth and found, oh, the foundation of the church already dug and laid, and here's this wonderful church, and they had assets, and they had a a place to meet, and everything was there for them. It was a turnkey uh, congregation, and all they had to do was step in and hijack the hard work and the blood, sweat, and tears of somebody else's labors. And so he's going to, and and they're busy just firing away because they want to steal away the Calvary Chapel Corinth away from the founding pastor and the team there, Paul the Apostle. And so by doing what they're doing to achieve that is to denounce him and make up stuff about him. And, and so Paul has to answer these charges. That's what the entire book is about. And we're going to pick that back up here in chapter 10. And these guys are divisive. They're foolish. And they've brought many charges and accusations against the apostle Paul. And they need to be answered according to their folly. Verse 1. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, Corinthians. I, Paul, it's me, who am, quote, unquote, timid when face to face with you, but, quote, unquote, bold when away. I beg you that when I come down there to Corinth, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people, who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are looking only at the surface things. If anyone's confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. Now, Let's take a look at that. If you're taking notes, number one, the consequences of foolish behavior, (laughs) he stands ready to bring the spiritual smack down. So one way to answer a fool according to their folly is sometimes to remind them of the painful and unpleasant consequences uh, that uh, persisting in unwise behavior will bring. So it's sometimes good to point out, hey, did you know to fast forward the tape here and this is what's going to happen. Are you okay with that? And sometimes it prompts them to rethink and give thought to their ways and course correct. So a little context here. We just came out of two chapters, eight and nine, that were, were so different in tone uh, that a lot of scholars think that this section from chapter 10 to 13 is actually a different letter because he just was talking so sweetly to them and appealing for that generous offering that they themselves had promised and, and he, had, he was affirming them and it sounded like everything was resolved. And then suddenly... There's this big shift. And so some people say, you know the painful letter that we don't have? Some commentators say it really sounds like what happened is is that part of the painful letter got tacked on to 2 Corinthians. And so what you have from 10, 11, 12, 13 uh, is part of the painful letter, that the part that was inspired by God. And maybe in the painful letter, Paul kind of got too 
much have fallen there. And so there was just a part. Now, other people say, you know what? You don't have to stretch that far because uh, Paul likes to affirm or it's commendations before criticism always with Paul. First, the positives. And then he saves. Uh, after you've been built up a little bit, there's, some, uh, there's su- sufficient funds have been deposited for a withdrawal. All right, of sorts, if you can track along with that explanation. So it's time, whatever it is. You know, for me, it doesn't matter to me if it's 2nd Corinthians, 3rd Corinthians, 4th Corinthians, or 18th Corinthians. It's in the word of God. It's the word of God, right? And so uh, Paul's appeal starts here in verses 1 and 2. He's, He's saying to his spiritual children, he's saying, don't make me. Do not make me come down there with a paddle. Do not. He's being a real father there. He says, I beg you, I don't want to come to Corinth and have to school you guys. And then what he says in verse 2, you'll notice in your text is, I I don't want to have to come and be harsh and bold and clash with some of you. Now, the letter's to the whole church, but he's calling the whole church to identify the, the vocal minority that's causing so much strife. And that's the way it is. Vocal minorities are dangerous. Vocal ni- minorities are powerful. Look at our country. A vocal minority is running the entire country. I didn't mean to stir up anything here, but I'm just saying uh, it's, they're very influential, though they're just a few. So he says in verses one and two, it's not his desire to be bold, direct, harsh, and, and lay down the law as it were, but he says, but we are not afraid to deal with the church troublemakers, put them in their places in a public and unpleasant way. Do you want that? Saying you're asking for it? I I hope that it doesn't go that way, but we're not afraid to bring it. So verse 1 says, we get to see one, uh, one more of the many accusations that these false teachers are making against Paul. Here's what they say right there in your text. This guy is bold and courageous from a safe distance. He's a big talker in his letters, but, but in person, face-to-face in the Greek, he's unimpressive and weak-kneed. Now, that's interesting. Paul is saying uh, it is a terrible mistake to confuse meekness with weakness. And what I like about this is that a lot of commentators just Um, describe Paul as a gruff, kind of rough, kind of controlling person who was difficult to get along with. But his detractors seem to paint a different picture. That when he's dealing with people and when you're around the apostle Paul, they called him timid. And he says, no, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... You see, he's pointing back to the way the Lord is, and he wants to emulate his Lord. And so he is meek as Jesus is meek. He is gentle as Jesus was gentle. And a lot of people confuse that with timidity. And he says, that's a big mistake. Because the word meekness means power well restrained. Mild, calm, soothing disposition that relieves burdens, not creates them. And uh, gentleness is a patient kindness uh, that is reasonable. And so Jesus, uh, nobody was afraid to approach Jesus. And though he be God in an earthly body, he says, come to me. Come to me, whoever you are. He says, because I'm lowly. Because I'm gentle, because I'm meek. You can approach me. And Paul said, that's the way I want to be. And so he kind of, in, with people, he was like kind of walking on eggshells. And he's so diplomatic and sensitive to a point where people say, are you kidding me? That's an apostle? 
And so he's kind of whispering and he's crying a lot and always afraid to raise his voice and kind of tiptoeing around and not wanting to hurt anybody's feelings. Yeah, he said, Corinthians, when I was with you, I was with you with fear and trembling, with many tears, 1 Corinthians. Timidity, humility, humbleness, and the super apostles were like, what kind of apostle is that? Tiptoeing around like that. And he says, I'll tell you what kind of apostle it is. It's like Christ. I appeal to you, hello, in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Man, meekness. Hello, come on. The, The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The ones, the warriors, the conquerors, the ones after the tribulation who are standing are the meek. That is crazy. I mean, it's the soft-spoken, love your enemy, go the extra mile kind of guys, the patient, the kind, who bless when they're cursed, to pray for those who who hurt them and put them to death. Uh, These meeklings, all right, the meeklings, I, I thought that was funny and creative. You know, to be a, you're calling me a meekling? Okay, yeah. And I'm going to try it on some other church, apparently. Some churches like me. All right, and, la- and laugh at my jokes. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, and those are the ones. Those are the guys who will, will conquer the world. The turn the other cheek guys inherit the earth and stand on the necks of their enemies and judge the world and judge demons and reign and rule forever. It's the turn the other cheek, folks. Wow. So he says, I appeal to you. (laughs) I, Paul, who are timid by, uh, hello, the meekness of our Lord and Savior. And so... Oh, and meekness, yeah. Jesus, meek and mild. You know, we got another side of meekness, the strength, when Jesus can flip over tables and drive everybody out. And why did nobody ever arrest him? If he's so meek and mild, people came back, the armed guards came back to the Sanhedrin, remember, and they said, why did you arrest him? And they said, have you ever heard him? (laughs) Yeah, so... Paul now goes on in this paragraph. He says, yes, he may walk weakly, but he fights strongly. And so he hopes his detractors are up to it because he's saying, game on, game on. So here's what he's saying. Verses three to five. We're human, but we don't wage wage war as humans like the false teachers do. We're not gonna fight the way they're fighting. We use God's mighty weapons not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. Let's talk about this now. So Paul's MO, his modus operandi, if you will, from Latin, mode of operation, his usual way of dealing with things, uh, is uh, to be uh, very um, meek and mild. But when he has to go to war, he says, listen, Uh, The world goes to war fighting fire with fire. They turn up the volume. And he's he's talking about the false teachers too. They turn up the volume. They make malicious threats. They use manipulation, deception, uh, slander, gossip. When they muster all the bravado that they possibly can do. And they uh, strong arm the opponent and muscle them to the mat. Now in Washington, you lawyer up, right? In Washington right now, they have lawyers for their lawyers, lawyer. Lawyers for their lawyers, lawyer, all right? Because everybody's doing that. And this is just uh, the way it goes. They have spies and they're using, their weapons are spies and leaks and, and, and uh, informants and moles. That's how the world battles it out. He says, we're, we're not going to play that 
game. We meeklings, we go about it a little bit differently, quietly, prayerfully, invisibly, and we use the methods that God gives us, weapons from heaven that have, quote, now verse four, divine power, God's power to annihilate, quote unquote, strongholds. Let's understand what he means by strongholds because most Christians misunderstand what it means in the original context, to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. It does not mean originally what everybody uses it for. It certainly makes sense and is applicable the way we all use it. But if you just are reading this and study it, you will see that the original meaning and context is a little bit different. So let's pay attention. To strongholds, he says, God's power will will uh, annihilate the strongholds. What are the strongholds? And in Paul's mind, he's making some military uh, metaphors right now. He's saying that the false teachers there in Corinth have have kind of got a stronghold. So he sees a big wall of false uh, teaching of false accusations, of slanders, of lies, of all kinds of things. So they dug in their heels and they built kind of a stronghold around the Corinthian church. And it's all built on lies and all of this, but it's a stronghold, right? So it's a fortress of lies. They've captured the church. They've entrenched these false ideas. They've created this high wall. And Paul says, I'm not worried about that because God has an app. For that. So he says, listen, instead of human ingenuity, instead of I'm going to take you guys to the, listen, I'm going to reason with you and I'm going to outmaneuver you and I'm going to send spies in and we're going to tape you and he's going to have a wire and we're going to raise our voices. No, 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 no. Oh, none of that. From the privacy of my own bedroom, on my knees, and in the privacy of my own heart, I will quietly demolish you. Not you, never the person. Your argument, the stronghold. I will demolish the thing that's keeping me from doing God's will and being that spiritual leader for those people. That's all gonna come down. He says, God's power. He says, he says, we have access to heaven's weaponry at our disposal. We can unleash God's power. We're gonna let him carpet bomb the place. And then I'll come to Corinth and it'll all be good. That's what he's saying. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate what kind of spiritual weapons he's talking about because the Holy Spirit has already listed them and Christians know what they are. I've got a nice slide for you. Here they are, the weapon of faith. He's saying, Jesus speaking, I'll tell you the truth, Matthew 17, verse 20. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this tall, huge, humongous obstacle, a mountain, move from here to there and it would move. Your obstacle would disappear. Nothing would be impossible. This is exactly the point. The stronghold, the lies they've told, the false teaching that they've sown into the souls of these Corinthians. It seems like it's a mountain. I, 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 what am I going to do? Oh, oh, just a little faith. And then he says, you know, with a tiny bit of faith, you can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. No matter how tall the obstacle, no matter how deeply entrenched the thing is, the roots go down. 150 feet, whatever. If you had a pinch of faith, he says, that's enough to remove the obstacle, to untrench it, and to get rid of it. And then he says, you've got the weapon of prayer. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James chapter 5 and verse 16. You've got the weapon of love, responding in the opposite spirit. If your enemy's hungry or thirsty, feed them. If somebody's got a harsh answer, return it with a compliment. A soft answer turns away wrath. It's not fire to fire. Fire to fire makes more fire. He says, water to fire. No, but that's not, that's not first nature to our hearts. And going on, you've got the weapon. I mean, he says, and the Lord will reward you and, and, and you will keep burning coals 
on his head. It's a weapon. Burning coals of conviction in his mind to change the weapon of the word of God. Take up the sword of the spirit. The only offensive weapon in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, which is the word of God. What did Jesus do when he's boxed in by the devil? The devil's coming at him with temptations, and he just does one thing. He doesn't reason with them. <laughs> he doesn't negotiate with them. He doesn't even pray. He just looks at him and says, it is written. He takes out the word and he does the work. The weapon of our warfare is not earthly human logic. It doesn't make sense to us, but we use it. The weapon of praise, and they began to sing in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. They began to sing in praise. With no weapons, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Singing a praise song, God says, that's a weapon. Worship the Lord. Praise him. It's a weapon. Pray to him. Talk to him. Keep up with him. It's a weapon. Quote the scriptures. It's a weapon. Believe God's promise is true. Look past the, the thing and see the promise of God and how he's using it. It's a weapon. And you'll demolish, you'll tear it down. And this is what he's saying. You can go back to the verses now. Verse 5, here's the one that everybody misquotes, but I, and even I do, you know. We demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We're taking their thoughts. Paul is saying, I'm taking their thoughts. Their, the word in the Greek is devices, schemes. That's the context. We're destroying what the false teachers have asserted to raise up against the knowledge of God, the understanding of the gospel and who the leaders are. He's saying through faith and by prayer and through the word of God, we take those things and bring them down and Christ will conquer. He's really, you know what it's really, verse five is really saying, there's no weapon formed against you that will prevail Isaiah 54, 17, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Uh, Matthew 16 and verse 18, uh, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Romans 8 and verse 37, everyone born of God will overcome the world. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. That's what he means. Is it that those things that are coming against you, they're not going to prevail. They're not going to win. The accusations, all of that nonsense, all the schemes and devices are in it. Now, the way we traditionally take it, it's so true and so applicable. Every thought that's ever come into my head, usually, that's just outside the, 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 the gospel and obviously got some problems with it, lining up with the scriptures, I picture... And this is what it sort of means and can be applied. You lasso that thought and that thing, and you pull it down by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. By the Holy Spirit, you take that thing down. The lies, the so many lies. She doesn't love you. She does love me. God doesn't love you. Of course he does. And you start using the scriptures and you start paying attention. You cannot stop the bird from flying over, but you can stop it from building a nest. And you can certainly stop helping it build the nest. My word. Doing the dishes going on. The bird comes by and goes, oh, come on back here. You know, I'm doing the dishes, you know. And yeah, just let's relive all those hurtful things. Let's just help them. Here's some yarn. Here's some twigs, you know. Make yourself up at home up there. And guys as well. 
Whatever things are true and pure and right and excellent and good and worthy of praise and noble. He says, think about those things. Get rid of that other stuff. And then the God of peace will be with you. We want the God of peace, but we want to do whatever we want up here. He says, no, you can't do that. You've got to start being the adult in this relationship with your own (laughs) self. Amen. You have no idea how much I needed an amen right there. (laughs) And now you do. (laughs) So, yeah. Let's, let's do that. So he says in verse 6, when the dust settles and the congregation is unified, then we'll take care of business. And I really like this verse 6 there in your text. He says, if you want bold, if you want fiery confrontation, we prefer meek, but we can deliver the goods. If you want fireworks, we'll bring the fireworks, people. And he says, but first, listen, Uh, We're ready. We stand ready to punish every act of uh, disobedience. But he says, once your obedience is complete, what does he mean? He's saying to the church, once you guys obey as a church and disassociate yourself from the troublemakers, the device of false teachers, then when we arrive, we'll deal with those guys who are rocking the boat and Punished there means to exclude them, to officially uninvite them. If they're rocking the boat, they're not allowed to get back on the boat. That's all it is there. And, and trust me, it's always about the doctrine or the, the, the issue is the argument that gets demolished, not the person. And even excluding them is a redemptive move to help them see you can't be benefited and live that way. If you want to be a part of the benefit and the love and the blessings, then you can't be (laughs) rocking the boat. You have to come in and submit yourself to the Lord and to his leaders, the godly ones. Amen? All right, so he does go on to say uh, in 7a, (laughs) which I really... Like, he says, Corinthians, you're only looking at the surface. And isn't that the problem? He's saying, listen, a lot of Christians are so gullible. The false teachers come in and don't you have an ounce of spiritual discernment that these guys are loud and arrogant and full of themselves and don't line up with the gospel teaching? Are you really going to just fall, fall for it? All you need is a pretty face these days and and fine-sounding arguments that tickle people's ears and be young and hip and attractive. And everybody's like goo-goo and buying books and all kinds of things. He says, come on, you guys. Stop looking at just the surface and use a little discernment. And then 7b, I love it, the opponent's claim. He can't speak well. This is a big deal all through the letter. And Paul said, it's true. I'm not a good speaker. One of the possibilities of the thorn in the flesh for Paul is a speech impediment. He said, okay, I'm not a trained speaker. No, it's difficult to listen to me. Wow. And they capitalized on that. And they said, how can he be an apostle if he's so timid and weak? He's always sick. He's always in prison. He always has trials. He's always talking about his weaknesses, his infirmities, and all of this. Is that an anointed man of God? And so he says this. If you're confident that you're a Christian, then rest assured, people, that the one who led you to the Lord and discipled you is one too. (laughs) That's what he's saying by saying, you know, if anybody's confident that he belongs to the Lord, let him rethink this thing. Because if I'm the one who led you to the Lord and discipled you and the church is standing because of our ministry, then maybe you can deduce in your mind that maybe God is working through us in a powerful way as well. That's what he's saying. Let's continue on. So 8 to 11 now. 
So even if I do both somewhat freely, I'm admitting it. Yeah, yes, I have authority from the Lord. He gave it to us for building you up, not tearing you down. I, and I'm not ashamed of it. I don't want to seem like I'm trying to frighten you with my letters. I'm coming to, and I'm ready to punish every act of disobedience. Verse 10, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people out there should realize that what we are in our letters when we're absent will be in our actions when we're present. Shabang. Now, we've moved from the consequences of spiritual rebellion to the purposes of spiritual authority. And so he says some clarification about what, in light of just what, what I just said, that'll be standing ready to punish every act of disobedience. He's saying, listen, I, I may boast and take delight in the authority that God has given me to do that kind of thing in the church. But listen, I don't want to do that. That is not what I wish to do. Verse eight and following is all about this. He says, uh, and this is precisely what the detractors and the Corinthian sympathizers are taking uh, issue with. He's controlling. Who, get, who does Paul think he is? He says he can come in here and he's going to punish every act of disobedience. Who is he? And he's saying, oh, well, he's going to answer and I don't want to steal the thunder. He's saying, <laughs> you guys know exactly who I am because you wouldn't be a Christian without him, right? And so uh, men have always, through the course of time, have hated all kinds of authority, not just in the church, but everywhere. It drives spiritual authority in churches, drives all the Koras out there crazy. And I'm spelling crazy with a K because Cora is with a K as well. And the reason is pride, envy, insecurity, and rebellion in these false teachers. But in spite of how it rubs some the wrong way, God has still entrusted men of God with spiritual authority in the church to quote unquote, to correct, rebuke, and encourage with all authority. With all authority from who? From the Lord, right? That is um, what the Bible says. And then he says that 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. And he says that uh, God gives authority to men to instruct people how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar, the foundation of the truth. First Timothy chapter three and verse 15. So God gives men authority. Why? To protect, to guard, to instruct, to watch over. One of the words for pastors, to oversee them, to watch over them. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, yes, I, I, I claim to, to have authority, right? And, and, and the word boast there, boast kind of means I take to light in it. He says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the way it is. But, but it's for the purpose of not bossing people around and tearing people down, but it's to serve them and build them up. That's what he says. To use authority in Paul's thinking is is in ways that make for peace and mutual uh, edification. So Paul's echoing passages that uh, describe what uh, God's idea is when he gives men authority in the church. Uh, not to boss people around, but to serve their best interests, not to lord it over them, but to come alongside and to help them, not to feel more important than others, but to let others feel more important and more significant than ourselves. Husbands and dads and moms and teachers and managers and, and bosses and pastors, everybody has some degree of authority and you're not using your authority for your own interests or to, to kind of lord it over people. It's the same in the church. You're to use your God-given authority to lowly, serve others. 
So that's what it says. He says, I'm not ashamed that I have the right to come in and say, okay, that's not in line with the scriptures. That has to be dealt with. I have the authority to do that. But it's for the benefit. It's done in love and in gentleness and in patience and in kindness and in humility and in godliness. He says, I'm not ashamed of that. And they accuse him of uh, of being a control freak. Heads up on that control criticism thing about being controlling if anybody manages anything and somebody who's being managed doesn't like how they're being managed the first thing out of their mouth will always be that person is controlling well of course they are they're responsible to manage the whole operation and so they're somewhat controlling we all know what you mean Uh, when you really have a controlling person. Uh, But generally speaking, nine times out of 10, it's not the case. It's that the person gets their nose out of joint and doesn't like how the person is using the God-given authority that they have for the person's best interest, whether they like it or not. And so we go on. He says, yeah, so uh, verse nine, I'm not trying to frighten anybody with it or intimidate. And, and they say, oh, he's so weighty and forceful. Hello, it's the directives of the Holy Spirit. They better be weighty and forceful when you're writing. It's the word of God. And he says, I'm not ashamed of that. Of course, it's weighty and forceful. And then he says, if, even if I freely make you aware, aware of that, he says, uh, God and that God, uh, God expects me to exercise this authority. He says I'm not shying away. I'm not apologizing for it. In verse eight and in verse ten, he says, um, "Yes, it's weighty and forceful. Uh, I plead guilty," kind of thing. And so, uh, and then he says, "But when I'm face to face, even though it's weighty and forceful, we try to be kind." gentle and meek. It's a double-edged coin, isn't it? A two-edged sword. It's the word of God. And there's authority from God. But you better be like Christ. Because Christ didn't walk around making making anybody feel small or used or manipulated. So verse 11, he says, such people out there should realize the people who are chafing under any kind of authority, that we're the same in our letters as we are in real life. And if you want weighty and forceful, you'll see us soon. <laughs> Love, Paul. Now, verse, <laughs> verses 12 through 18, and then we're done. Oh, we got to breeze through. It looks like a lot. I'm going to paraphrase it. It's going to be brief. So let's talk about such people with their mixed up ideas. Oh, he says, a little time for some, some sanctified sarcasm. We do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves, by the way, by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond our proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned us, a field that, hello, reached even you we are not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others like the false teachers our hope is that as your faith continues to grow our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can continue to preach the gospel in regions far beyond you even, for we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory, but at the end of the day, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And it's not the one who commends himself, who's approved like these guys are doing. It's the one whom the Lord commends. And that's the end of the chapter. Let's kind of run through this. Now we've moved from the consequences of spiritual rebellion to the purposes of spiritual authority and now to the ground rules for boasting. Not all boasting is bad. 
Paul boasts about the authority God's given him. He boasts about Titus and Timothy to the churches. He's boasted about the churches to other churches. And, and so we, and he even boasts about his troubles. So the word in one sense in the, in the Greek means to take delight in something, to confidently rejoice in something, right? And so he's got a happy heart about a good thing God is doing and gives God the glory for that. That's a, a non-sinful way to boast. Uh, I don't recommend you try doing it because it just, <laughs> it'll never work. You know, one guy told me, he goes, you know what I'm really good at? He, he said this, I'm really good at being humble. I didn't say anything, but I fought a lot of things. All right. Yeah, the ugly side of boasting, I don't, you know, it's all about you and how you look and you're exalting yourself and all of that. So, so he says a uh, little sanctified sarcasm. He says, we never even dream of comparing our credentials to those who are tooting their own horn. You know, that's what he's saying. So, and he says, by the way, their self-applause, he says, is invalid because the way that they measure their own self-applause is by comparing themselves to, an, uh, to each other. So since man is fallen and depraved, and there's nothing good that dwells in us without the grace of God. To compare yourself, to measure how good you're doing by somebody else's fallen life is like the blind leading the blind. So they're applauding themselves by, you know, we've got, we've got people who are, I mean, the politicians looking to other politicians. And the actors and celebrities are looking to other actors and celebrities. And the Wall Street bank brokers and bankers are looking to Wall Street brokers and bankers. And... It's perpetuating a cycle, and there's all of ourselves. Look, I'm doing so good, and look, and even Christians are comparing themselves. I wonder how I'm doing. Well, I'm doing better than so-and-so. Oh, you're unwise, because it doesn't mean you're doing well. You have to compare yourself to Christ and the Word of God and your behavior to what the Word of God expects Instead of saying, well, I'm not as bad as this, and I'm kind of looking at that person's life and how they live their lives and how they spend their money and how they raise their kids, it's foolish. Because it's not the standard, it's not the measure. They're broken. Even if they got something good going, they're still broken. And so you're thinking you're okay because you compared yourself to somebody else. He says, no, you compare yourself to the scriptures and to God, and to Christ, and then you'll find out, uh-oh, I thought I was doing really good because I'm doing so much better than X, Y, and Z. But guess what? There's a lot of room for growth. Amen. When you look at the Bible, especially these two ladies, no. They just said amen. And so <laughs> Let's finish up here. This is what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. The whole thing can be summed up by this. Here's what he's saying. Okay, you guys, let me check my resume. I'm just going to read. They've got their resume, and they did. They wrote their own letters of recommendations. And that's what he says here. They commend themselves. They write their own testimonies and everything, testimonials. He goes, let me check mine. He goes, okay, Paul the Apostle, called by God, uh, church planter, uh, 51 AD in the winter, evangelist, missionary, pastor, second missionary journey. He's just reading his resume to them, right? Let me check this out. Sailed to Europe from Turkey, planted a church in Philippi, then went 100 miles south, planted a church in Thessalonica, then went 44 miles to the south, then did some missionary work in Berea, and then went 300 miles south. And let me see what this says. Let me put on my glasses. Planted a church in K Corinth. Corinth. Oh, I'm the one who planted the church there. Hmm. I wonder about this. And, and then uh, now he's looking down at his resume and it says 18 months spent winter from 51 AD to summer 53 AD digging the foundation together, sweating, crying, praying, discipling, planting, watering, harvesting. He says, so 
I guess it would be normal that when I write you, there's something weighty and forceful. And that I have some say in what's going on there spiritually. I guess as I read the resume, that it wouldn't be the case if I hadn't come to you, if I was some stranger, if I was some dude coming in and I was hired on, and then I tried to hijack everything that somebody did before me, I guess you could doubt me then. But it says right here that I planted a church among a bunch of pagan, Gentile, idol worshipers who were sexually immoral and didn't know their elbow from their nose. And now they're spirit-filled Christians. I close with this. So Damien uh, Kyle is a pastor. I, I, fall, I fall asleep listening to the Bible or a sermon or something like that. And so Damien Kyle's preaching on this passage. And, he's, and I'm falling asleep. But then I'm like, whoa, I got to hear this. He said, he started the church in his living room. Thousands of people go to Calvary Chapel, Modesto. Thousands. It's ginormous. He started the church in his living room 30 years ago. And he says, from time to time, there's guys who come along, but one guy in particular, he came and he got, he, Damien hired him. And he said he was so full of himself. He locked horns with everybody. He's divisive. Why do you do it this way? Why do you do it this way? If I were the pastor, I would do this, all of this stuff. And Damien said, you know, enough. And he rebuked him. And the dude went across town, like dudes do, and set up a little storefront place and called it, you know, Calvary Chapel 2 Modesto, whatever, right? And took a chunk of people. And he said, this is the spirit. They are the, these false teachers are the progenitors of those kind of guys who come in, they're hirelings, they don't care about the people, they just care about the notoriety. And look at this, all the hard work, the foundation, everybody's up and running, there's a church, there's assets, there's everything there. And now you, without doing a single thing, go across town, and lie and slander and pull away people that you didn't even pray for, you didn't listen to their problems, you didn't help them with their marriages, you didn't bury their grandfather, and you didn't dedicate their baby, and you weren't up at two in the morning counseling them through tears. Oh, but you're going to start a fresh new work across town and take a hundred of them, right? Uh, so, you know, I had a problem sleeping after that, actually, <laughs> because uh, the way he tells the story, you know, he says, these guys are the progenitors, the poster ch children of all who just come in and are unscrupulous like that. So bottom line is Paul's the spiritual father. He's a church planner. He, he's done the work. He says, who, who are you going to trust? Who's more credible? Come on. Who's got your back? Who's got your best interest? He says, um, there's an authority here, not because it serves him, but because it serves the best interest of others. Let's pray together. Father God, we just thank you for Paul the Apostle and, and the place he now serves in heaven must be a pretty glorious position. But Lord, our eyes are on your throne and you and your nail-scarred hands. So we thank you for your love. We look to you. There's a lot to think about in this chapter. Please help us to assimilate it and put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. Sometimes it feels like I'm breathing.